and welcome to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country. Or maybe you found us on the podcast, found anywhere podcasts can be found, including now with the Harbinger Media Network. I am Seven Host Editor, and I'm here with Lauren Latour. Howdy. And we are here with a what to do this weekend episode, because there is Lots of action happening in terms of social movements, pushing for change this weekend. And it is a great chance for people to get involved, get connected. We are interviewing organizers from two different marches later this show. First, you'll hear from Nick DiCarlo and Ali Rougeau, who are organizers with the March to End Fossil Fuels. And then uh, we'll be chatting with Saeed Hassan, who is the executive director of the Migrant Workers Alliance for Change and who sits on the Secretariat of the Migrant Rights Network. And that is for the big status for all March is happening on Sunday. Both actions are happening not only in Toronto, but at in many places across the country. And so you can get involved wherever you are to both of these. And so it's a great chance, great way to get involved, great opportunity. But we want to start off the show, before we do, with a bit of discussion around the purpose of marches. And that's because it's a, a it seems like a very relevant topic, given where we're going to, but also B, because of a conversation I happened to have a couple days ago with a person I'll say on the periphery of climate organizing, who was basically saying that the climate movement should move away from marches and instead do other types of disruptions. And I'll start by saying that's already what is happening. Marches are a part of a broader network of disruptions that you will see. We've covered many of different versions of that of the past. But it did make me realize that perhaps there's sort of a misunderstanding around the purpose of marches. And so, Lauren, I'm going to pose a question to you. As someone who has been an organizer, again, in the space for at least 10 years, how do you think about the purpose of these larger scale marches? Like, why why do you think they they matter? And, and what is the thinking behind them? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll start off by saying, like, I don't 100% disagree with what that person said to you, because like, yes, we do need to diversify our toolkit of tactics. There are tactics like marches, for instance, like sit-ins that we that we tend to fall back on a lot because they're they're tried and they're true and we know how to throw them together not in a short period of time marches especially depending on the scale take take months and months and months of planning and a lot of labor but but they're but they're they're tactics that we kind of have a have a bit of a playbook for and not only do we know how to implement them but we also know how they'll be how they'll be reacted to and and then and 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 as a result we're able to more easily slot them into a, like a strategic trajectory, I think, because it means that that we understand what will happen after the march um, and in the lead up to it. And I think the thing that that one of the reasons we there's a couple reasons <laughs> that that we that we have marches and we have and we continue to. And one is like it's a visual demonstration of the scale of support for a given issue, right? If you can demonstrate with like the people still talk about like the Montreal student strikes that that happened um, 10 years ago now, 12 years ago now. And part of the reason we still reference them is because it was hundreds of thousands of young people out in the streets. Hundreds of thousands of young people were also out in the streets a few years ago during the climate marches. So like, again, like that's that's how that's how we remember them. They make for an incredible visual um, if you're somebody who isn't participating in them, but watching from home on the TV. Um, and they also they feel incredibly powerful when they're well executed um, and when you have the the right sort of like alchemy of people present and the right number of people present, they feel amazing to be a part of. So I think that's why we continue to fall back on them, or, or at least one of the reasons. And then the other reason is that they're a fantastic recruiting moment because of that demonstration of scale that I referenced earlier. It's like they're a really awesome time to get people out in the streets, see that there are a ton of other people that are organizing around the issues they care about and see the number of different organizations that are maybe involved and be like, ooh, I am really excited if it's a climate march, for instance, and they're a young person who came out because of like a Fridays for Future thing at their school, then they get there and they realize that like, oh, there's like a local chapter of 350 or a local chapter of like, there's like a Climate Justice Toronto or a Climate Justice Ottawa there. Awesome. I can feed into that. So they're, they're an excellent recruiting moment. And they're sort of like within... 
that's that's sort of if, uh, when I when I visualize what like the upward trajectory or the upward kind of like line tangent, I guess, is the is the word I'm actually looking for. If I'm like trying to cast my memory back to like, I don't know, data analysis classes, there's like that tent, there's that tangential line that, that you're and you kind of want your campaign to carry upwards um, and meaning that you're gaining more momentum, you're getting closer to your, to, to this mountain goal that you're reaching. And usually it involves a large number of demonstrations, one of which can be something like a march because it's that moment to recruit and draw people in. And it's a moment that also is, is good to engage your existing organizers around. So it, it kind of provides it's, it's, it's this project that results in a lot of goods. And like, yes, again, it cannot be the only tactic we use because for instance, it's like the marches that we use now, <laughs> like the, the school marches back in what, 2019 were fantastic. They were also not the bread marches of the French revolution. So like those those are the marches alone cannot demonstrate an adequate show of force and threat to the dominating like government or like force that you're pushing back on um we're not we're not marching on versailles to like i don't know imprison marie antoinette here all we're doing is we're showing up we're having a show of force we're making friends we're making connections um it's usually a pretty jubilant atmosphere um so so yeah, it's it's not the only tactic because what I usually like to think of and, and how people think of it, it's like a march is great and then you do need to figure out how to escalate from there. And that might not necessarily be escalating in scale because like your march is your event that you get 400,000 people out to if it's if it's if it's a once in a generation march. But what you do need to do then is kind of like intensify the action and a march again is a good opportunity for that because it allows people to kind of pick their factions and pick their poison in terms of like a movement ecosystem. Yeah. Anyway. No, yeah, no, exactly. And and thank you for that that breakdown because I think that is, I mean, so key, right? Like, because from an outsider perspective, you can sort of see when the only time, if you're not really in the movement, the only time you'll hear of movements is when they take to the streets because it's the time you actually get press. And so it can seem like that's the end-all be-all of the action. But, you know, for example, in the Status for All conversation, they've been fighting for this for decades. And so this march... That happens to be at a certain the time leading up to a cabinet vote, which could literally shift the lives of a mil over million people if they can get cabinet to just agree to give a pathway to regularization and status for these these people is decades of work. And it's not that the march itself is going to be the thing that solves the problem, right? It is that um, it is a chance a the chance for to, to show that support and 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 to begin and to really push for and to get the message to, to the to the to the media because again that's also the one time the media often shows up is if you get 100,000 people on the streets the media will then broadcast your message to even more people and it's an, it's an amplification tactic but like you know, a climate movement doesn't have something so specific of an ass so like have caucus do this this fall which is well, yeah. I would say certain certain communities and certain organizations do, right? But 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 yes, the the climate oh, movement I, I, at I large. Mean like, yeah. yeah, and I, I mean I mean the march itself right now, like on the twenty on the on the sixteenth, like the march that we're doing in tomorrow, as this will come out tomorrow, doesn't have such a specific ask, right? It's like end fossil fuels. It would take a lot longer to get it get get things done, and so we are actually at a different scale of our movement building than the status for all movement building is, right? The status for all is like hopefully right near the end of this big push that hopefully will succeed and and deliver something, whereas we're like in the middle, like the climate movement right now is still trying to build enough power to push. Like if the if caucus was considering the concept of getting rid of all fossil fuels and and they didn't even have to pass uh, it through the house which is the reality that exists right now for the status quo campaign we would be so stoked and it would we would have done so well and so like for us the purpose isn't that we think that this is going to end fossil fuels the day after but exactly it's a chance for people to meet each other and like it's how i honestly found myself into the climate movement i went out to an eco fair and met someone and they invited me to the next thing and then and then i met some other people and they moved to the next thing and then i invited people to the next thing and by that sort of summation of meeting new people and trying new things and seeing new people i finally found my way in and that's what these things are and 
I also like what you brought up the fact that like it's something organizers know how to do because you talk that we talk a lot of that a lot about in infrastructure pieces right now, like how like like Canada can't build high speed rail because we have no companies that have built high speed rail in a long time. So that so we have to like sort of import people and then they don't have the number of regulation. They don't they don't know all the same regulations. And so that's like a longer process for us than for say a European country because of that. We should still build high speed rail, but I'm just saying that that's a thing about not knowing. And that's true in terms of movement infrastructure too, right? Like, like there aren't as many people who know how to do a whole bunch of different diverse other types of tactics, whereas there's a lot more people who know how to run a march. And, and so it's a lot easier to be able to plan that for a particular purpose like this than it would be to something, a, a different tactic that they've never tried before because of all the different ways that it could go differently, who they have to talk to might be differently, how they have to prepare people for going might be different. And that's a, it's a much wider um, and, and maybe bigger ask than show up on this day, hear some from some people and push, you know, push for this, this goal and then really use it as moon building. Yeah, no, exactly. And I, and I know we have to, we have to go on about a minute, but, um, but no, so I, th- I think what I'd say then to folks who are feeling a little bit of March fatigue, which is legit, we've all been there. I'm there most of the time. I totally hear you, but I would say if you can, if you can muster up the energy close Twitter for the day. Twitter isn't actually as helpful to movements as we think it is. So get off Twitter, free up your mental space, go out to the in-person action um, and meet people who are who are also interested in engaging in climate work, for instance, and and do other stuff. You know what I mean? Like you don't have to only go to marches if you don't want to only go to marches. There are plenty of other ways to plug into the movement. You can door knock. You can, I don't know, there's there's an infinite number of kind of like tools and tactics that we can pull from. If you don't believe me, there's this great book that came out several years ago called Apologies for the Ambulance that went by. There's a great book that came out a few years ago called Beautiful Trouble. And it's not an exhaustive list of tactics, but it does have like a solid like 100 pages or 75 pages of like literally just different tactic, like different like forms of creative direct action. And it's like pick that up from the library, flip through it. It, it'll it'll get some creative juices flowing and then like you and your pals that you met at the march can engage in some cool new campaigning like if if you're annoyed by it then then don't just do that go beyond it yourself man like take some freaking initiative <laughs> <laughs> yes exactly and so um with that we will be back with multiple interviews first with nick DiCarlo and ali Wajo, and then with said hazan but the big news the big headlines here is Prepare yourself. Check if you're in Toronto. Check where it's happening in Toronto. If you're other places, go online and check it out. Really, truly key moments uh, in this Status for All campaign. So if you can support the Migrant Justice Network, uh, sorry, the Migrant, if you can support the Migrant Rights Network in their push right now, transformative change is possible in the next few months. Uh, I was blown away by how close they actually are to getting such a huge win. And so Truly, if you can, the 17th is a day of action across Canada. And then tomorrow will be all the climate marches. And so you got your weekend, at least during the day, planned out. And then you can have all the fun in the evenings. Uh, And then we'll see you back next week when the marches are over and we have other organizing to do. The Green Majority is entirely listener-supported, and we would take this opportunity to graciously thank every individual donating to our Patreon page. Thank you very much. We are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, home of such podcasts as Alberta Advantage, The Breach Show, and the Pullback Podcast, as well as over 40 other excellent shows. I am here with Nick DiCarlo, 
and Ali Rougeau, who are organizers of a multi-generational march to end fossil fuels. Nick DiCarlo is here representing the Seniors for Climate Action Now. Ali Rougeau, listeners have, will have heard, has been an organizer uh, of youth across the city for, for many years. So it's exciting to have even that. I feel almost like the three of us, we have almost three generations. So that's exciting just, the, just for the jump. But to start us off, Nick, most folks know Ali's bio previously. And so Seniors for Climate Action is maybe new to folks. So can you tell us a little bit more about SCAN? Okay, so thank you. Seniors for Climate Action Now is an organization that started about three years ago. And it started because we felt we had to bring, well, first of all, we were seniors and we, and we felt we had to have a way to be active in the environmental movement. And the potential of seniors as a, as a political force is enormous. There's roughly 9 million seniors in Canada, huge demographic. And, you know, it's, it's assumed that seniors don't really care about the environment, but in fact, we do. We do, first of all, because we care about the future and future generations, our children, grandchildren, and also because we're affected, we're impacted very directly by some of the impacts of climate change. The heat waves in, in British Columbia, the majority of people, 600 plus, who died were seniors. There's a lot at stake for us in a very immediate way as well. And we found that in the years since we started, we started with about 20 people, we're close to 500 members now. And... And we, there's a tremendous amount of, of experience and what do you call it, skill among seniors. And, and we're, we're able to use that to our advantage. And so the big job for us is to find ways to organize seniors into the environmental movement and, and unite with youth. And that's been the objective right from the beginning. And one of the things we find when we go to demonstrations that young people, sometimes they're surprised to see seniors there supporting them. They don't expect it. But in fact, you know, that's part of our message. We're here, we're with you. We will be with you. We've, we've been here we've around a long time. We've seen a lot. We want to be with you and change things. That's, that's awesome. And so important, right? You're beginning to see some of the movement. I know there's some movement also in the States that Bill McKibben has sort of done around, I think he has a rocking chair bit. I forget exactly what it is, but he references rocking chairs a lot in, in some of his actions as he's, I think, you know, approaching 80. and. So what's amazing about this conversation is that it's been a bit of a tradition in the last four or five, well, actually dating back at least until 2014, the New York climate strike that we were at, was is that this sort of youth-based coming together recently, right, right at the new year, sort of bringing sort of that energy into, into spaces. And so to have this be a multi-generational conversation really expands that. And so even though... you. Like it, we've done some version of a march almost every year around this time for the past eight to ten years. It's going through different generations, except with a couple slightly different actions during COVID because obviously marches weren't possible. But but basically that's where we where we've been. And each year there's sort of a different theme, and each year there's something sort of a different angle and intention sort of coming globally at it. So Ali, I wonder if you can tell us about the global context of this march. Absolutely. And thank you so much for, for having us on, on the show. It's really wonderful to get to talk to you right before the big day. Listen, we've had a really difficult past few years, of course, as a, as a global community, but, but past summer especially. And I think uh, Canada has felt the climate crisis, but the rest of the world also, um, you know, from, from Hawaii to, to places uh, around the world that have really felt floods, fires, other climate disasters. And at the same time, we continue to see fossil fuel industries pushing for expansion. We continue to see them raking in record profits. We continue them spreading false narratives around the fact that we couldn't transition away live with them. And so we have these, these two tracks happening in parallel. And I think the global context is that we really want to confront the two. We are no longer just calling this a global climate march, you know, just a march for climate justice, although these things are very much still our focus. We want to make sure people associate and understand that every climate disaster is because we've been producing and burning fossil fuels. And the solution to putting a stop to this climate crisis, to avoiding it getting worse, is putting a stop to the production and consumption of fossil fuels. And that's the context we're, we're entering with. You add on top of that a layer of how do we do so in a way that's 
fair and that's equitable globally, but also within our country, because we know that across Canada, not everybody's going to be impacted in the same way by a phase out of fossil fuels. How do we make sure that the transition is, is equitable? And so I think that would be the general framing we're, we're getting globally. I should also mention um, that the timing of this march is uh, specifically because there is a few things happening in, in New York, especially. There's a UN summit on, on climate change convened by the UN Secretary General. This is supposed to be, it's a new summit. It's not one of those regular meetings like COP. That's supposed to be really about uh, climate ambition. He said he would only invite countries that show new commitments and tangible action plans to meet those commitments. And then on top of that, you have the usual New York Climate Week, which is taking place all at the same time. And so all of that is kind of giving us an extra push to, to really time our march around that, those key events. Awesome. And so I, I do want to dig in a little bit more to the fossil fuel piece in a second. But before I do, I wonder, Nick, if you can just tell us about what is actually happening locally tomorrow. So we've been organizing for a number of weeks now, about five or six weeks. And what will happen is we'll meet at uh, Queen's Park at 11 o'clock. We'll have some speeches and, and some entertainment. And then we're going to march. And we're going to march around in a circle across college down Young to Dundas, across the university, and back up. We'll pass banks. We'll, make, we'll, we'll, we'll seek certain key targets. And what we want to do is show that, in fact, there's real popular support for ending fossil fuels. That's the objective. And we think we will be showing that tomorrow. Amazing. And am I correct that this, while that march is happening, there's a few other things? I've heard about a commons. Can you talk about that? Uh, yeah. So the uh, I'm not really part of the programming committee, but we're going to have as a group of, and maybe Ali knows a bit more about this than I do, but there will be an opportunity for groups to get together and, and display what they're doing, talk to people, et cetera, as part of the event. Ali, maybe you can uh, collaborate a bit. Yeah, you said it well. The Climate Commons, which is, you know, when you go to a march, you often get a lot of leaflets and posters and you don't always know how they all match each other. So we thought, why don't we bring all of the groups that do an excellent climate or climate justice related work, invite them to showcase their work, as Nick mentioned, at a table. So in a section, that will also be a way if you don't want to march, that will also be a way for you to hang out, start talking about new initiatives. So and it's kind of also going to be a community space for those who might not want to or not be able to participate in the march. And then another space that I'm extremely excited about, although I'm very upset that I'm no longer a kid, is the Kid and Family Zone. Because there is going to be face paint and bubbles while there's speeches and uh, entertainment during the rally. And that is, you know, an upgrade to the past rallies and one that I think is extremely appealing. Totally. Yeah. I mean, everything is better with bubbles. This is just a, a fact. Bubbles and sunshine universally appeal to all. I hope the bu some bubbles make it on the march itself. That's That's the best. I love the fact that's a part of this. And so... I want to give you both a chance to talk a little bit more about fossil fuels, because obviously over the years, the shift towards sort of naming the folks who are responsible has increased and the importance of doing so, I think, has increased. I mean, even just a couple of weeks ago, you saw the Suncor CEO who, you know, Suncor has been the one oil company that for years spent time saying, oh, no, we really care about climate change. Oh, we're shifting to do these sort of things. Oh, we're the better one than the rest of them. And then, uh, while still not really having a lot to show for it, but then to come out so blatantly as a recent CEO has to basically say, well, you, you focus too much on that, which is comical because like never more than like 1% of Suncor revenues ever came from anything but oil. But anyways, the idea that that was still too much and that instead we should be focusing exclusively on next quarter profits and as drilling as much as possible is if 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 anyone was trying to give oil companies a benefit of the doubt, I can't see how that should not be the sort of the last nail of the coffin. And so, yeah, to both of you, maybe starting with you, Nick, and then going to Ali, can you talk about why focusing on fossil fuels is so important in this moment? Well, I guess it's because of the big lie. And the fossil fuels have been getting away with the big lie. And if you remember, the tobacco companies did the same thing. They knew that people were dying from smoking and, and they del deliberately hit it and deliberately promoted it. So what the same thing has happened in, in big oil. 
We know Exxon predicted back in the 70s the exact curve of climate warming that's happening now. They knew it was happening. They knew it was attributed to fossil fuel, primarily fossil fuel use, and yet they hit it. And they, and they, talk, and they pretend that they're going to be able to do just fine by expanding oil production and everything's going to be good. What's unique about, and not unique, but what's particular about this recent period is that the profits for oil have gone up dramatically because of the world situation. So what does that mean? Well, they have to start making more because they can make more money. And they even say it. You know, so Suncor isn't the only one that's doing this. They're all expanding their production. The problem is, of course, that it's not being challenged by governments. Why? Why isn't it being challenged by governments? That's really it, the question. And you know, we, we, we cannot rely on, we can't have a future where the government just plays footsie and with the, with the oil companies is mainly concerned about market and profits, doesn't care about what, well, you know, effectively doesn't care about what happens to people. That's not the role of government. That's not what we can expect. And, and, and it's in, in the time is running out. And that's the other part of this, that curve that Exxon did, it was going up and it was going up during this time. And it was predicted long ago. And now we're seeing it. We're seeing it in the, the wildfires. We're seeing it in the flooding. We're seeing it in the hurricanes and the, and the massive rain and the, and the, you know, the melting of the Antarctic ice. 30, 40 years ago, we were talking. And if, you know, you did, you, one of the things that CBC is running, David Suzuki's program, Matter of Survival, again, in the 18, late eight, 1980s, he was interviewing people and, and including politicians, you know, federal government, Lucien Bouchard, for example, interviewing them. And they said, well, we have to stop fossil fuel production. We have to take action now. Here we are 40 years later or 30 years later, 35. And what's happened, it continues to increase. So we have to expose that. We have to take a stand. The time is running out. We're then, and so that's why it's so important. Yeah, I, I can only add to what Nick was saying, that the reason we need to focus on fossil fuels is because for too long, even politicians that recognized climate as an emergency and that were willing to take action or said they were willing to take action, continued to invite fossil fuel industries in. I mean, at every UN climate summit, they have the, they have their tables, they have their you know, they're, they're marketing, they're invited in regularly. I mean, our own federal government meets with them on average five times a business day uh, every, you know, every day. And when, when the, so the degree of trust that our politicians still have in these financial fuel industries is, it's outrageous when you see their track record. They first denied climate change, then purposefully delayed it, and now are pushing for Soft solutions, solutions that all experts say will not get us to a safe climate. Things like carbon capture for oil production or fossil hydrogen. They continue to push for these as a way to say, we don't have to switch. We just have to wait until these technologies are ready and all will be fine. That is dangerous. That might make us waste a whole other decade that we could otherwise spend on really reducing our emissions. So they cannot be trusted. We have to call them out. And we have to also say, you know, fossil fuels are overall bad for us in so many ways. They're bad for us because of the, the climate change they're creating. They're also really bad for our health. I mean, every time I speak to physicians, they remind me of the issues of air pollution, whether it's in our houses or in the street. They're also bad for the communities that live closest to them. Fossil fuels have very direct victims, but the people that live next to the oil sands or next to or to oil wells and gas wells. So remembering that throughout their life cycle, fossil fuels create uh, victims and and they can no longer be part of the client conversation. They need to be phased out. So this is what the focus is trying to do is, is as Nick said, addressing this lie that we've been telling ourselves that we can have fossil fuels and we can have a safe climate. Both are not compatible. For sure. And so back to you, Ellie, how can folks get involved? So joining tomorrow is an excellent first step or, or way to join Again, 11 a.m. at Queen's Park. You can get there by subway and get there by bike as well. Any other vehicle, really. But I also recognize that we are this end. Tomorrow is the first day of it's Rosh Hashanah and it's first day of a holy period for the Jewish community. And so if you're unable to join uh, tomorrow, we recognize that. We understand that the date was chosen internationally because of the U.N. summit, but it's not a date that we would have otherwise um, chosen. And so I want to say there's a lot of upcoming actions, including a lot of digital actions that we're featuring on our website and fossilfuels.ca for you to get active. And remember that 
Climate action isn't only about you holding a megaphone in the street, although that's important and helpful. It's around you using your role and the power that you have in your life to, to get to talk about climate solutions, to push people further. So if it's about you um, changing the way you place your money or invest, that might be a good way. If it's about you starting up a conversation in your workplace about what are we doing on climate, that's excellent. You starting up conversations with loved ones and families about, you know, around elections, that's also climate activism and climate action. So tomorrow is one step, but really this is the, the beginning of, a, I think, a, a much bigger movement that's, that's coming to really put an end to fossil fuels. Amazing. And so folks hope to see you out tomorrow. And it's a tradition to give our guests a last thought. And so, Nick, if there's anything you want to drive home from this conversation or you want to get out to our listeners, what would it be? I guess it would be that we can no longer wait for others to act on our behalf because they're not doing it. We have to act and we have to find ways, as Ali said, to show that the population is united. We also have to find ways to talk to each other because we are divided. We're divided partly by, from, in terms of people who don't um, understand what climate change is, do not understand the issue. We're divided by other people who deny, and are deliberately fostered by oil companies, deny that the climate crisis is real. So we have to talk to each other. We have to build uh, enough unity in the population that there will be uh, change, that there will, it, it will be it will be forced and it will come about. So I guess that's the real thing for me, that as Ali said, it's the beginning. There will be more demonstrations. They must be bigger. There will be more activities. There'll be more talk, more discussion. There'll be more indications in communities, in organizations that take a stand throughout the society. That's what's going to make the difference. The time is running out. And I know that sounds very negative, but it's true. It's a fact. The time is running out. Therefore, we must be active. And there is a better world to live, to build. We can live a much better way if we address some of the problems that we're facing, not just in the climate, but in society in general. The lack of housing, the problems with the educational system, the problems with the healthcare system are all very much rooted in the same lack of respect or concern for people, very much rooted in the drive for profit and the 1%. We have to challenge that if we're going to have a future. Amazing. Well. Thank you both so much. This has been Nick DiCarlo with Seniors for Climate Action Now and Ali Rougeau, the, a climate justice organizer here in Toronto. Stay tuned. We're going to go to music break and then we'll be back with Saeed Hassan with, with the Migrant Rights Network. Stay tuned. As previewed earlier on the show, we are absolutely stoked to be joined by Saeed Hassan, the executive director of the Migrant Workers Alliance for Change, who also sits on the secretariat of the Migrant Rights Network, which we are coming up to an absolutely pivotal moment in the fight for migrant workers' rights. And so we're so stoked to have you here. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So by way of introduction... Can you just give a sense of what the Migrant Rights Network does and sort of how you see your work overall? Absolutely. So let me start with the Migrant Workers Alliance for Change, and then I'll go into the Migrant Rights Network. So the Migrant Workers Alliance for Change is a membership-based body of farm workers, domestic workers, international students, undocumented people, and fishery workers. And how we function is people call us with problems or reach out to us. And when they do, we support them through self-organizing. So we say, instead of telling someone, okay, we'll take you and help you get healthcare, we say, how can we support you to get healthcare? We support workers to you know, confront their bosses directly when they have their wages unpaid or they're being exploited in some way. So we build up the capacity of migrants to fight for themselves. And as a membership-based body, we have levels of membership with the most advanced being around 300 and the full membership being over 30,000 migrants. And all our demands 
and the actions that support those demands are carried out by migrants themselves. So we are not kind of taking ideas and then working on them, but rather we're supporting migrants to take actions for themselves. And the Migrant Rights Network is a coalition of 40 such organizations like the Migrant Workers Alliance for Change who are coming together with a single unified focus of building a united voice and a united front to ensure migrant justice. Amazing. And are those groups, the networks itself, all Canadian or is it across the globe? No, there are 40 organizations in Canada in the eight oh, wow. provinces. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's that's huge. And so as a sort of secondary intro to get to sort of the, the big march that's coming up, can you tell us sort of what the current status of migrant rights are in this country and why now is such an important moment? Absolutely. So The way to understand this is that there are 1.2 million temporary permits that are issued in the country each year, which are for migrant workers, international students, refugee claimants, and migrant workers on open work permits. So there are many different categories of migrants who all have different access to rights, right? Some people are on employer-dependent work permits, which means they're literally tied to their employer. They're not allowed to work anywhere else. Some of them are also living in employer-controlled housing. So in such a situation, as you can imagine, if you speak up about mistreatment against your boss, the boss can kick you out in the street. So you're homeless. Uh, You're starving because you're not able to work for anyone else. You can only work for that boss. The boss has all these tricks to kick you out of the country. So now you've been deported and they can ban you from returning. So in such a situation where there's such a significant imbalance of power, it's not possible for many migrants to speak up when they're facing abuse and violence. The other issue is that many migrants, including study permit holders, work permit holders, who are in essential but low-wage industries, so this is everything from agriculture to food delivery to trucking to retail to tourism, in effect, the essential workers that we all celebrated during COVID-19, none of them have access to permanent residency. So what happens over time is that one day, eventually, your permit will expire and will not be renewed. And so you have to make the difficult decision. Either you stay here, at which point you become undocumented, or you leave and maybe uproot yourself from a place you've lived for many years and go to a situation of potential abuse, violence, or economic strife. When that happens, when people stay, that is, they enter another cycle of abuse and violence. Now you are living in daily fear of detention and deportation. It's even harder to get basic services. And that is what undocumented people are, and there are half a million undocumented people in Canada. So you can think of it as a as levels and steps of exploitation and abuse. There are different rules, but the fundamental thing is that none of these people have permanent resident status, and as a result of not having that status, they're not able to access healthcare, education, they're separated from their families, they can be exploited, they can be abused and have and face reprisals when they speak up. So What we have been pushing, the migrant justice movement have been pushing for decades, is that we need a single-tier immigration system, but we also need a single-tier society. It's not possible to have a fair society without equal rights. And equal rights are not possible without full and permanent immigration status for everyone. So that's the fundamental issue. Right. So permanent residency, I just want to be clear, is not about whether we live here or not, because a lot of undocumented people, seasonal migrant workers, etc., are living here for decades at a time. It's about whether you can access rights when you are here. Now, as a result of our collective action, Prime Minister Trudeau promised in December of 2021, that was 20 months ago, that he would regularize, which means give permanent resident status to undocumented people, as well as give permanent resident status to migrant workers and students. In response, we And this is as a result of our organizing, he made this promise, but it's been 20 months and he's not delivered on it. Now, with the potential of an election in the spring or the fall next year, it is crucial that we make sure that Prime Minister Trudeau delivers on his promise. Now, what that means now is that Prime Minister Trudeau and the immigration minister need to have a cabinet decision. Basically, the ministers need to get together in a meeting and effectively just say yes, right? That's what they need to do, because everything else is done. This is not like a law that will be debated in Parliament. This is a policy change. It can be made by cabinet. They just have to say yes, and then they have to put in the resources to make it happen, which is they can't then say yes, but, you know, we'll take a year to, like, make the website through which people can apply. We need them to say yes, and we need them to get it done. And obviously, we need a program that includes everyone, because you don't want to create a regularization program that largely excludes people. So... Parliament has been on holiday for the last two months, and they're back on September 18th, which is 
coming up. And so in advance of that, on September 17th, one day before, in 15 cities across the country, as well as in the United Kingdom and in Spain, we are coordinating a joint actions where migrants and their supporters will take to the street in almost every province, nine provinces in the country, saying with one unified demand that we need Prime Minister Schroeder to keep his promise and ensure status for all. Wow. So I did not fully understand. They don't even need to pass a bill for this to happen. Cabinet itself can just say, we're doing this, and then yeah. it happens. Yes, and and all the steps prior to that, which are departmental, it's called, you know, the policy steps, their consultations, there's something called creation of a cabinet memo. All those other steps have already happened, and our collective action has ensured that actually what we believe is a fairly comprehensive proposal is ready to go to cabinet. So since that promise... All of our actions have resulted in making sure, but the key blocking point now is the prime minister's office because the prime minister's office is the one who controls the cabinet agenda. So he's kind of need to allow them to speak about this issue and they're choosing not to. And we need to make sure that they understand that there is a massive unified call across the country for this change. Right. And, and as you said, you have been building towards this goal for decades, not you personally, but sort of the movement itself. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. The call for status for all has been around as long as we've had two-tier immigration, right? But there has been an escalation. Now, just to give you a sense, in the year 2008, the total number of temporary permits that were being issued in the country were fewer than permanent residents coming in, okay? So that meant permanent residents exceeded temporary permits. Temporary permits was a smaller portion of the immigration system. Today, you know, sorry, in 2022, the last year that we have data for, there were 1.2 million temporary permits issued and approximately 400,000 permanent residents, which is to say there were three temporary permits for every permanent resident. So this shift in the last 15 years, where it's gone from below to now three times higher in 15 years, and the progression is only increasing. We have shifted this country towards a temp revolving door immigration system. What that means is each year, millions of people come, they work here in low wages, they're paying to all the services, but don't get access to them. So they're in effect underwriting our entire social welfare system. And then they leave or they're deported or they become undocumented. And then the cycle happens over and over again. Now, what this does is it changes everything. Right. It isn't just about migrants. Imagine for a moment, you know, lots of us are concerned, for example, about the privatization of healthcare. What we have to understand is these 1.2 million people plus the half a million document people, so 1.7 million people, actually use private healthcare. So there is private healthcare for almost 2 million people out of a population of 40 million. Similarly, all the post-secondary institutions have started multi-year construction projects in which they're relying on international student fees for, right? Housing has shifted because many employers have changed the housing infrastructure. In certain cases, cities didn't lay down sewage pipelines or didn't put in transportation systems because they were bringing in migrants who could just be warehoused instead of people who would need all of those other resources. So healthcare, housing, similarly work. I mean, imagine if employers can pay 1.7 million people less and they can make them work more, then the entire labor economy is affected, right? Like because then there's an overall downward pressure on wages and working conditions. So the entire system in society that we live in, every aspect of it, health, housing, all of it is affected by immigration policy. So immigration policy and migrant justice is no longer a separate issue as one of many issues. You know, it's not like climate and disability, gender, like they're all separate, but rather it is the governing issue. It is the organizing issue that affects all others. And so status for all is actually not just about migrant rights. It's about our collective ability to live a, a good life. Right. Well, and it's also, it strikes me, and I'm wrong, a, the, like the creation of this sort of two-tiered system and the expansion of it, like as you mentioned, that's 1.5, even 2 million, say, out of 40 million is a huge percentage. That's 5% of the population. Like it's not. Yeah. Like, and at the a, rate it's growing, right? So it's one in 17 people across the country. That's the most conservative estimate. Some people actually say one in 15, right? Who are migrants. In the major urban centers, right? That number is actually actually close to one in 10. So one in 10 people 
right? And this growth has happened so quickly that the expectation is that it might go down to one in five in the next five to seven years. So when fully, you know, 20% of the country could become migrants living effectively outside the arena of basic rights. We need to put a stop to this. We need to reverse the tide. We need to ensure status for all. We need rights for migrants and we need to reject a society which would effectively be no longer have even the ability to talk about equality. Well, yeah, for sure. And as you mentioned, if the only option for them is privatized because we have done nothing else, you get worse and worse systems because we're basically just propping up the people who are willing to exploit this labor force to the best of their ability. You know, like what's incredible is that migrants are doing so much of the work that we need. The amount of which our agriculture system is dependent on migrant labor right now is out of this world. And so to have this system where we desperately need these people, and yet we are refusing to give them access to the systems that we all enjoy is, I mean, just blatantly against everything people say or claim that this country stands for. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And we have to understand that this isn't like people are being excluded. It's that someone's profiting from it. Right. Entire industries have been created to create everything from recruitment to work to access to education, housing, healthcare. And these are the same people who are also running the other systems, right? It's not that there's, it's the same super rich in the country. It's the same bosses who are mediating the rest of our lives. So at this scale, it's not that people are using some you know, other systems. They are fully being exploited and abused by post-secondary institutions themselves, by employers, big businesses themselves. I mean, you mentioned agriculture. Just to give you a sense, Canada is today's world's fifth largest exporter of agri-food. Okay, and that number is set to increase. They're trying to become the third largest exporter of agri-food. So the majority of the food that is grown in this country, as well as the flowers, the wine, the other products, is for export. Okay, so agricultural workers are not being brought here because there are no Canadians willing to do the jobs that we can feed ourselves. Agricultural workers are being brought here because nobody's willing to work in these conditions for this multi-billion dollar industry, one of the world's fifth largest industry of agri-food. We're talking about, you know, money that is beyond our wildest imaginations. And so that's what that's the real story, right? That's what we're facing. Right, for sure. And so if folks are are hearing this and are rightly angry and wanting to take to the streets and join you, can you talk us through this action on the 17th and you know what's happening, where it's happening, and how can folks get involved? Mm-hmm. So the first thing I'm going to ask everyone to do is right now, whenever you're listening to this, pull out your phone, get on a website, and just go to statusforall.ca. And when you hit that website, there's a petition. Just put in all your information and hit send. There's two things. One, it immediately sends a message to all the cabinet ministers that you want to support migrant justice and migrant voices. And two, you get added to our mailing list, and then we can send you information, updates, speaking points, and information about other actions. So that's the first thing. Second is the action in Toronto. It starts at 2 p.m. at Bloor Young on Sunday, September 17th. So again, September 17th, Sunday, 2 p.m., Bloor and Young. It's going to be a march. It's As I said, it's one of 15 marches taking place across the country. And we are going to be, and you know, I encourage everyone to make signs, to bring a friend, bring two friends, bring your co-workers. Let's build a massive movement because only when thousands of people are marching on the street will Prime Minister Trudeau not be able to ignore his own promise and do the right thing and ensure status for all. Amazing. And as you said, this is a particularly important time because you have maybe a year, maybe a little longer, depending on how the election happens, to get this through and to have Trudeau actually follow through on his promise. We really believe that the captain decision needs to happen during the fall term, which is between September and December. But of course, if it doesn't happen, we'll keep pushing. And even right, if there's an election and there is a different political party, we will keep pushing, right? This cannot stop today. It will not stop tomorrow. And we need to win status for all. For sure. And so you mentioned previously the website. Is there any other way people can get involved and stay connected with your work? 
statusforall.ca. As soon as you put in your information, you're going to get an email and then more. But if you want, you can also look for Migrant Workers Alliance for Change and the Migrant Rights Network on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. So that's Migrant Workers Alliance for Change and the Migrant Rights Network. Amazing. And so it's our tradition to give our guests the last word of the show. So I'm going to throw it back to you to sort of hammer home any point that you think you need to or any other thought you want people to to know who are listening. But before I do, thank you so much. This has been Said Hassan, the executive director of the Migrant Workers Alliance for Change, and also who sits on the Secretariat for the Migrant Rights Network. Thank you so much for being here. Hopefully everyone will join you on the streets on the 17th. And if not, at least send that petition. And yeah, any last thoughts? What I want to say is that we really need to fundamentally believe that it is possible to change the economic system, the environmental system, and the world that we live in. It is completely possible. We have already won so much. Migrants, racialized, working-class people who have been excluded from almost every rights have been able to stop 100,000 deportations. That's how many we stopped last year. We've been able to change and get permanent resident status for at least 90,000 people, working class people in 2021. We have been able to make massive changes to the study permit program, the work permit program. The work is far from done, but it is possible to change everything. So I really, you know, in a moment when we have, many of us face cynicism and uncertainty about a world that seems to be spiraling out of control, collective action will and does make a difference. It's just about joining with others like you and becoming part of organizations. You can't do anything alone, but with people, we can do anything.